Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my, steadfast, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystria, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, and thank you, Fred. Uh, I'm Travis, I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are continuing in our series in 2 Timothy that we've been calling Follow the Pattern of Grace, uh, looking at one of Paul's very last letters that he wrote in his life, uh, written near the very end of his life, uh, to encourage his friend and ministry partner Timothy and the church that he oversaw, as well as the churches that would come after that, to follow the, the unmatched, life-changing, immeasurable good that is the life of grace, that is the pattern of following after God that Paul taught as an apostle, as one who saw Jesus and was authorized by Jesus to faithfully teach the foundations of this new redemption that we have in Christ. And we're focusing particularly in this book on Paul's emphasis on grace. Uh, for one, just because we have to pick a topic, there's so much in here and we're not going to get to spend a ton of time, but also because grace is just so important. It's a cornerstone of the Christian life and it's important that we have it and follow it, that both we and the community around us will be transformed by what God meant for us to have in grace. 
Uh, last week, we started to look at what grace looks like lived out, how we live with one another in relationship using grace. But we also looked in relationship to that at something that undoes grace, that, that Paul says is a threat to the community of grace, which is self-centeredness. Now, that's going to come up again today in our passage because, as you see, our, our passage today starts with the word but, so that means it's referring back to something that's already happening. This is kind of part two of Paul's stream of thought here, but we're going to focus on how uh, grace looks like in our life when we are threatened by self-centeredness, and not just when we're a little threatened by it, but what it looks like when grace is completely gone in the lives of our friends, maybe in ourselves at times, in the lives of the community around us. What does grace look like in the midst of that community? How is grace different? Well, Paul actually gives us uh, a long list of both what the life without grace looks like. He gives 18 things uh, that go wrong in verses 2 to 5. And he contrasts those with another list of eight things that go right in the life of grace in verses 10 to 11. You can see those in our passage there. We're going to go back through them. Uh, But Paul sets up, I think, a contrast between these two ways of life, the life completely without grace and the life that's actually full of, saturated by, centered on grace. And he's going to show us also the difference between the two how the two actually diverge and why they go different ways and how we can come back from that. So through our text, I want to help us see uh, three things. The life without grace, primarily from verses 2 to 5. The life with grace, from verses 10 to 11. And the difference between the two, from verses 15 to 17. So the life without grace, with grace, and the difference between the two. And before we get into that, I invite you to just bow your heads with me and pray. Let's ask God to fill up our time. God, that we believe that you are near, that you uphold all things even now, that it's by your upholding that I'm able to speak, that it's by your upholding that we're able to listen, that we live and move and have our being. All of this is caught up in you. God, how easy is it for us to feel like you are distant and far off, like we are walled off, little cells and creatures of our own, that it would take some great act for you to move into our lives and press into our hearts, and yet it's the reality that you are already at work, that it's by your very grace that we have any sustaining life at all, and that you sustain us even in times when we walk away from you, even when whole centuries go by where people are walking away from you. It's your life, your word that is upholding us in that time just by grace. Help us this morning, God, to know that you are truly near us now, that you press into our hearts, that you can move beyond the hardness, that we are not so walled off that you could reach us, but that we are in fact being held by you now. So would you do that this morning just by your grace? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning or a Bible app, or if you don't, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. Feel free to keep that open. We're going to go back through the text a little bit together this morning. Uh, Let's start out, though, with the life without grace as our first part of this text. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, as we talked about last week, how you respond to the threat to the community of grace, which is self-centeredness. How do we respond to each of us and communities revolving just around our own hearts and lives instead of around God? He says the way that we do that is gentleness, 
patience, and kindness. This is what he urges Timothy to. This is what he urges the church to in the midst of people deeply disagreeing with you, being hostile to you, being, being deeply divided with you. In the midst of relationships that are not working well, Paul urges us to gentleness, patience, and kindness as the way forward, as the way to draw others back even. Yet what Paul says here in chapter 3 is, but... Right, so all of these things are good. All of these things are right. This is the way that it should go. This is what grace looks like. And yet, just because we follow those things doesn't necessarily mean that our relationships are going to get better. Doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to like us as Christians. Doesn't necessarily mean that life is going to get any better for us. Paul wants us to see the reality is that living the Christian life is not necessarily going to make life easier for you. It's probably going to get hard. Paul says, actually, this is what things will be like in the last days. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it's an expression in the Bible to talk about a whole era of time. And it's actually the time that we live in now, biblically speaking. The last days are what was inaugurated by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It's the beginning of the end. It's this whole era. It's not just a time that scripture is talking about that's going to be a couple years. This isn't Paul just saying, pay attention when it gets really, really bad, when it's exactly like this, you know Jesus is just a couple months away. Now, Paul is talking about a whole, a whole epoch of time that in the midst of this time, between when Jesus came and inaugurated the hope that we have now, and between the time when he will come back and bring all of that to completion, what he started will become fully before our eyes, renewed, whole, redeemed, all that was meant to be will actually be between those two bookends. This is what life will look like. It's a both a now and a future statement, right? If, he, if he's telling Timothy to look out for these things, if he can tell him, avoid these kind of people, then it has to be something that would have happened in Timothy's life too, not just in some future far off time. Paul's trying to say, this is what life is going to look like at times. At times, even though Jesus has come, things are going to get worse. Even though you treat people with gentleness, patience, and kindness, things are going to get worse. Paul wants you to be aware, to not be shocked at the fact that times are going to be hard. That we as Christians may now look out at a landscape that's different for maybe the first time in a very long time where Christianity is not the norm in our society. And maybe praise God for that because Christianity has only exploded when it is not the norm in society. That's when we have actually grown and had our greatest development within ourselves, seen our greatest closeness to Christ is when we are not in the seat of power and normalcy. So this is not a bad thing, but Paul wants us to be aware, to not be discouraged that even though you're doing the right things, that doesn't mean you're going to get the results that you necessarily hope for. Paul says that life is going to be difficult is what the word says. It could maybe even be translated dangerous. And as we read through these things, it feels like that would kind of be a hostile community. I don't know that I want to be hanging out with that person. What does he say people will be like? Uh, look at verses two through five. I want to help translate these a bit for us. He says that people will be lovers of self and money. In other words, they will not love other people first. They will love themselves first. They will love things over people. He says people will be prideful and arrogant. We will be boasters. 
We will be holding up all the things that we have done that other people might marvel at us. We'll exaggerate even how good we are to people. Maybe we'll pad our resume a little bit. We'll pad our accomplishments a little bit. We'll massage some of these things. I'm sure you've seen these memes on Twitter or Instagram where someone will say a translation between the business world, increased profitability by 10%. What actually happened was that I just told everyone to stop the meeting and go home. So we were more profitable and could work on our own. There's this, this lingo that we use sometimes to make a simple thing that we do seem great and amazing. Paul's talking about some of those things that we're gonna be prideful and arrogant and not just inflating ourselves with speech but tearing others down will be abusive. We'll be rough with others, we'll be crass, we'll be coarse, we'll not care about the kind of words that we use to describe others, we'll not care about using prejudicial terms or prejudiced jokes, we'll laugh at those that use those jokes and not say that's actually not the way that God intended us to treat one another. It says we'll be disobedient to parents, which is another way of saying that we will not listen to wisdom and we will not submit to authority. We will not place ourselves under good authority even though we are all meant to be as those created by God who have a king and a ruler under authority. We won't do that. We'll buck against that. It says we'll be ungrateful. That's another way of saying we'll be entitled to whatever we feel like we ought to have. We will say, I ought to have this thing. This ought to be mine because I expect that that's what I deserve. It says we'll be unholy not just neutral to the things of God, but outright opposed to them. I don't like this. You're not going to make me do this, and I don't want anything to do with this. I don't know. I can't be the only one that said that to God at times, right? This character list is starting to feel like a smoking indictment of me. I don't know if you're with me. I was kind of out after the first part, right? Lovers of self and money. It's like, well, I'm done. I don't know if you've been at a wedding. They've said, you know, everybody stand up that's married. How long have you been married? One year. Okay, now sit down, right? I'm after one year at this point, right? Like I'm not standing up with the people that have been married for 50 years. I'm done after first one. Maybe you're done with me. But Paul doesn't stop. He keeps going. Verse 3, he says, people are going to be heartless. You'll have no basic love for others. You just won't care. We'll be unappeasable. We're not going to be open to reconciling differences with others. I don't want to hear from you. I'm done with you. I'm out. We're going to be slanderous. We're going to have no respect for the lives of other people. We will care simply what we think and not what happens to them. Social media is full of nothing except slander, perhaps. We'll be without self-control. We'll never stop ourselves. We won't say, this is enough and I should not take more. I don't need more. We're going to sit in what our culture is exactly like today, a consumeristic culture where we say more, more, more. How can we have more? Paul's saying we will be people of more. We'll be brutal even, not just taking for ourselves, but taking from others without care, kindness, consideration for other people in their lives. Verse 4, we're going to be treacherous. It's another way of saying we're going to betray the trust of other people. We're going to do things that hurt them knowing that it would hurt them. We're going to bail on each other at times. We're not going to back each other up and take care of one another. It says we'll be reckless. It means we're going to give no thought to the consequences of our actions. Whatever I want to do, I'm going to do, and it doesn't matter what happens. We're going to be swollen with conceit. That's, that's bloated by pride in a way that you, you just can't move. It sticks you around you. It says we're going to be lovers of pleasure, finally, rather than lovers of God. That means we're going to love the gift of life's good things, but not the one who gives it. We want God's stuff, not God. 
And not only that, right, that smoking accusation and indictment of what the world is going to be like and seeing ourselves reflected in that. But Paul says in verse 6, not only this, but he goes into what's a worse category, it seems, that there are going to be men who take advantage of women. Men who take advantage of women who find themselves in difficult situations. That's actually what verse 6 is about. Paul's not saying that women are weak. He's saying that there will be even men who find women in vulnerable situations. Maybe from a broken home. Maybe with a broken past. Maybe just suffering from a bad choice as any of us could make. And they will take advantage of them in their struggling instead of being supporters of them in their redemption. Instead of being for them, they will take from them. They will take from those who are in a position of vulnerability. See, Paul, this morning, sisters, not denigrating who you are, but rising up in the midst of a culture that wasn't necessarily known for its support and valuing of women to make sure that people not take advantage of you. Paul is saying that this, too, would be deeply wrong, and yet this, too, would also be a problem that continues in our time. This is what will happen when grace is gone. I'll be honest, right? This is a gloomy picture. None of you are like, yes, I came to church today for this. Hit me, pastor. Come on. Right? This, this is dark. This is what unraveling looks like. This is what it looks like when people unravel. This is what it looks like when societies unravel, when we slowly turn in on ourselves. That's what this list really shows in all its different facets. This is what happens when we turn in on ourselves, when we again become the number one priority, when we become the center of life and value and authority and meaning, when we become lovers of self and lovers of money, life becomes about me. What can I get? What can I have? What can I do? Life has turned in on me. When we fall into pride or arrogance or, or recklessness or indulging without self-control, life becomes about me. I do whatever I like, whether it hurts people or not, whether it creates problems for others or not, whether it makes the brokenness of their lives worse or not, whether it uses my strength to prey on others or not. I turn in on myself with my unwillingness to submit to authority, to be ungrateful without having love for others. Life becomes about me. I ought to have these things. I ought not to have to listen to you. I am the center. This is the picture of a person, of people, slowly turning in on ourselves, revolving in an ugly way just around me. This is what happens, Paul says. This is, again, a continuation of his thought thought from last week when we talked about the dangers of self-centeredness. Paul is saying this is what happens when you just let go, when you fall back into a life without grace, into self-centeredness, into me as the center. This is what happens. This is the detailed picture of what life looks like when we wander from God's grace and unravel in sin. These verses are what it looks like. I 
That's not what our society would say. That's not what our culture and time would say. It would say that when you are free to be you, most authentically you, then you are freed up. Then you get to do all that you are meant to do, all that you are meant to be. And Paul is saying, look out. Do you see where you are headed? Do you see that you're not just this, this yacht in the middle of the ocean by yourself? This is you on 93 in rush hour. That's what humanity is like. We navigate with others. We are not good at this as a species. Birds are much better at merging than we are. But we are meant to be creatures that move in harmony with one another. And we turn in on the self, we stop caring. And we get into accident after accident after sometimes fatal accident. We were not meant to run on the self. We were meant to have God at the center, not ourselves at the center. When we don't have God at the, un at the center, we, we unravel because it's God from the biblical perspective that gives us life in the first place, that holds us up. It was God's word in Genesis that spoke light and life into being. It's his word that animates us. It was the breath of God that animated Adam from being just a pile of dust into being a creature made in his image. And so when we move away from God as our source, then we return, so to speak, in this biblical picture, back into darkness and nothingness. It's God that is meant to animate us. We are made to run on God. America does not run on Duncan, right? America is meant to run on God. The world is meant to run on God. I, you, we are meant to run on God. And when we don't, we run off the rails. He's meant to be our center, but sin has always been whispering in our ear from the very beginning, he is trying to hold you back. He's trying to make sure you don't have all that you could have, all that you could be. He doesn't want you to have fun. It's trying to twist you in on yourself, to take you away from you being what you are meant to be, to have all that you are meant to have, which is not you on an island, which is not you as the center of the universe, but you, as we talked about last week, as this thriving planet orbiting around the sun, not trying to be the planet that's somehow the sun. Again, Earth is a great planet. It is a terrible star. People are great people. We are terrible gods. And when we get the two mixed up, we unravel. Paul says, this is what life looks like when it's all about you. When grace is gone, you don't get the best of humanity, you get the worst. Makes us ask, I think, is this really what we want as a society, as individuals? Is this really what I want? Unchecked autonomy to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want it. If that goes where Paul says it goes, is that really the kind of place that I want to live in? Is that really the kind of life I want to have that always pivots around me, that's always rising and falling on whether I feel like I'm being fulfilled, whether I feel like I'm getting to do what I want to do? And not that we ought not desire those things, but when that is defined by me, when it centers on me, we sink. We unravel, is that really what we want? 
Do we have the courage to face up to where Paul says this is leading us? To what we see it doing to our culture right now? Or are we simply, as Paul says in verse 13, deceiving ourselves, deceiving others, and being deceived? Because this is what happens. This is where humanity goes. The narrative of progressivism is that we march forward eventually once we shed all the ancient ways, all the oppressive ways to arrive at a utopia. Paul's saying we are unraveling. We are winding down because of sin, not winding up. It was the very idea that we would search for something apart from God as life that was the problem in the first place. So how can we keep searching for something apart from God, thinking that it's going to fix the problem, which is searching for something apart from God? Conservatism holds out the idea that we would go back to a golden age, to better times. But how can the answer be times after sin already came in and broke everything? There are plenty of things that were broken in that time. Plenty of things that maybe we didn't see culturally because we weren't from that background, because we didn't look that way, because we didn't grow up in that neighborhood. The answer is not a future of our own making forward or backward. The answer must be God at the center. Otherwise, life is going to continue to unravel in a life apart from grace. But Paul talks about another way. He talks about a life with grace, starting in verse 10. If you can jump down there with me. Paul recalls, to move to our second point, the life with grace, how Timothy followed him in living a life with grace at the center. He says that that life was characterized by Timothy following, Paul says, my teaching, which is about the hope of a Jesus who saves sinners, of saving those who can't save themselves. It says, Timothy followed my conduct, meaning, meaning Paul's way of life. His, his hope being centered on Christ changed how he lived in relationship to others. He says, Timothy followed my, my aim in life, my purpose, what I was heading towards. He followed my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, another way of saying my, my perseverance. And verse 11, he says, you even followed my persecutions and sufferings. That's a very different list, isn't it? First of all, it shows someone following someone else, automatically not at the center, but orbiting around somewhere else. That's the first difference in this list. But notice also some of the characteristics of the life that follows another life, of the life of grace. It's first of all following someone else's example, their conduct, their teaching. It respects them. It listens to them. It puts itself under authority and says there are probably many ways where I don't know what I'm doing. It has, as we talked about last week, humility. The life of grace follows Paul's aim in life, which we know from Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, was to count everything possible in life, whatever he might achieve, whatever he might have, whatever he might do or experience as a pile of garbage compared to having Jesus Christ, that he would give up all of it if he just might have Jesus. 
The life of grace follows that aim, the if whatever I have is taken away, if I just might have Jesus, take what you will, lose what I may, if I just have Jesus, I have what I need. The life of grace is characterized by faith, which in and of itself means that I look away from me to something else to take care of me. It doesn't say, I look to me, I try harder, I work longer hours, I get it right. It says, I need help. It's characterized by patience, Paul says, which means that it's actually okay for the needs of the self to maybe not be taken care of right away. For me to not come first, but maybe second, maybe last. That's really countercultural right now, isn't it? It says it's characterized by love, which is not just a feeling, but actually a commitment to seek the good and the flourishing of another. In our marriages this morning, I want to exhort you, love is not just a feeling. You may be going through a period where you don't feel that much love for your spouse. Love and God's love towards us, praise him that this is true, is not just his feeling about us, but his commitment to never walk away. That's what the life of grace looks like in love in marriages, is a commitment to never walk away. That doesn't mean that there aren't times when people do terribly things wrong, terrible things uh, to you and that you have to say, we can't continue in this. But in relationships where it's just, I don't like you right now, the call of the life of grace is to say, I am committed to seeking your flourishing. The life of grace is also marked out by perseverance, by staying the course, and this relates to committing in love, even when it would feel so much better to hit the eject button. Just to say, unfriend, right? To break all connections, to hit exit meeting on Zoom, and be done, right? We want to do the relationship version of that sometimes because sometimes people are really hard. Paul is giving this list of the way that the life of grace looks after he gave the list of the way that a life without grace looks. Paul's saying in the midst of people doing things like this, to have perseverance, to hang in, to know that God had perseverance with you, and to have a curiosity about what perseverance this person in your life might need from God, what kind of patience they might need. And last, and perhaps surprisingly, Paul says that this life, for all the, the humility that it has, for all the prioritizing others, for all the respecting others, the being patient, the persevering, giving of itself to others, is a life that's marked not by celebration, not by millions of Instagram followers, but by suffering and persecution. Verse 11. It's so strange, right? That this person, this life, does exactly what you would think the self-centered life wants this person to do. It gives itself away. It puts someone else first. It doesn't insist on its own way. It seeks the good of others. If you're the me monster and everything is me, 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 you're thinking, yes, 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 yes. Give to me. I will take that. Thank you. I will go first. You can go second. I will have that now. So why does that kind of life, the life of grace, lead to persecution? 
because the way of grace is inherently threatening to the life centered on itself. The life of grace is inherently threatening to the life centered on itself. This is a strange thing that we have to consider because the reality is the existence of a life lived for others is a threat because it shows a way to flourishing where the self is not the center. It threatens the autonomy, even the economy, of the life lived on the self. It shows that, that something or someone else could be the center instead of me in my life, and that person could be okay. Something else could be the chief economic driver of why I do what I do, of how I get what I need. Something other than me at the wheel could be possible for flourishing. And if that caught on... I might have to start giving to others. I might have to start going second. I might have to start not being the priority, to start not being the authority. And the self-centered life does not want that. It hates that. It sees the idea of me not on the seat of power, not in the driver's seat as death. So it will inflict or attempt to inflict suffering and persecution on those that would threaten the way of life, the model of life, with me at the center. That's why you're going to face persecution for doing the right things, for doing good things, for being a selfless person, a person modeled by grace, because that very life in and of itself is a threat to the whole ecosystem of a life modeled on me. So don't think that as you're starting to do these things, that just because people don't like them doesn't mean that they're not right or they're not working. It just means that you might actually be on the right course, that what you're doing is perhaps provoking what might need to be a good response uh, in others' hearts eventually that they would see a different way. Even if we have to suffer for them to get there and see that, Christians, that's what Jesus gives us, the ability to sit in that and suffer that others might someday see that there is another way, that there is a life that doesn't have to revolve around me. And that's the life that Paul calls Timothy and us to in verse 14, to in the midst of a world that's unraveling around us and hurting us, to be a light of humble grace in a world of darkness centered around me. And we are that light by relying, as he says in verses 15 and 16, on the word of God, which is able to reveal the way of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, the way out of me to God. Paul calls us to stay anchored in that word, in that guide to life, to scripture, because it holds out the source of a life with Grace, And that brings us to our last point, the difference between these two ways of life, which comes out in the source of them. There are obviously drastic differences between these two and just the ways that they look and how they treat each other. But the real difference, the essence of why they go different ways, what creates difference between them, is actually the source of the life that they draw on. It's not that one 
the life based on the self, is desperately seeking a source for life, and the life based with grace is like, no, nah, I don't need that. I don't need things. It's fine. It's fine. That's not what Paul is helping us see here. Now, the reason that one turns in on itself and the other turns out towards others is that the way of grace is seeking the source of life, seeking what it needs from a source that can actually give it to you without destroying you and it. And the life based on the self is seeking that source from something that can't. The self-centered life seeks life from things that buckle under the pressure of being your center because they were never meant to be the source of life. They were meant to be good, created things, not ultimate things. They were meant to be satellites and planets, not suns. It's only Jesus, as the scriptures point out, that can draw life out for us without taking it away from us, without crushing it. It's only Jesus who can give life away in a way that actually only ruined him. That doesn't ruin you and that thing. Jesus was the one that took the ruin upon himself in a way that doesn't ruin you. Everything else can't hold the weight, but Scripture says Jesus was the one thing that can hold that weight. Everything else will disappoint you, and you will crush it while you try to make it the center of your life, but Christ can hold that weight. Because at the cross, he took all of the ruin that was meant to be ours. God put there all of the justice that should weigh down on a life like verses 2 through 5, that should press against that, that should correct that, that should punish that. Jesus took all that weight for you there and let it sit on him, sink him, and let him ruin him, that when you put your faith in him, it would be like you were sitting there with him. It would be like the old you that needs to die truly, as Paul talks about elsewhere, does die with him there, that you do sink with him. He takes the ruin on him in a way that doesn't kill you, but that killed him. He's the only one that can do that. He was ruined so that you and I would be brought back from unraveling in self-centeredness. That's the difference that Jesus makes. That's how he gives you a different source to draw on, a source that can hold the weight because he can pull the ruin out of you. He can pull the verses 2 through 6 out of you onto him, and he can hold that for you. There's nothing else around here that can hold that for you that won't become utterly broken when it does it and that will break you in the process. Jesus is the only thing that you can stand on that can actually hold the weight of a life breaking under self-centeredness and push you back into life. He's what gives you the source to draw on, that gives you what you really need, what you were meant for. And it's not that we stop needing something. That's not the difference. It's that we find our need finally met in something that was able to hold it. He's what we were meant for. He's meant to be that fulfillment and fullness that we long for. Scripture is not saying stop longing for fulfillment. It's saying stop settling in places that you can't find it. 
He's not saying don't have enough to just give up. He is saying find enough in me to have me be your enough, to have me be your always, your deep well, your power for life, to let me be that affirmation and consolation that you so desire. Don't stop looking for those things. Start looking for them in a place where you're not just constantly tired of chasing them down and not finding them. He's meant to be your destination and home. The one that you don't have to take an extravagant mortgage out to get. The one that you don't have to hunt down and then lose because this market is crazy. He's meant to be your freedom from not having enough, from not being enough, from not doing enough. He is meant to give you all that you need. Stop listening to the lies that lead to a life of self-centeredness that say he is trying to hold back from you because all he has ever done, all the cross ever shows you is how much he wants to give you. Even at the cost of his own life. Paul says for, for a good person someone might dare to die. But Christ died for us while we were sinners. While we were verses 2 through 6. Where else are you going to find that? Where else are you going to find something like that to draw on? Practically, as we come to a close here, what might it look like then to actually draw on Jesus in this way this week? I'm going to leave us two practical things to consider, to continue and to move. They may seem like the same thing, but we're going to talk about them differently. To continue and to move. We must continue, as Paul says in verse 14, in what you have learned. For those who believe, you must continue in what has been handed down to you. In the hope that Christ still saves big, ugly sinners to hold on to what you have learned, not to drift into, I have to clean myself up to come to church. I have to be the right kind of person that says these kind of things to be in relationship with other Christians. I have to never reveal these deep, dark ways that I'm struggling if I'm still going to be in this community, but to still remember to continue in what you have learned that Jesus still saves sinners. That he takes the ruin for you. We have to continue in the hope that he does that by the power of the Holy Spirit alive in you now, not by any power of our own. It's not like Jesus starts and we go the rest of the way. He's not a jump start and pushing us down the road. It is every step of the way that we rely on God. Continue in what was given to you from the beginning, that it was God at the beginning, it will be God at the end. It's God who carries you throughout the middle. Continue in meeting this God in his word because we're not going to find him in some sort of ethereal meditation and philosophy about what we think he is like. That's, again, centering on me and what I project onto God, what I think he is like instead of letting God, out of his word, in his own way, in his own time, speak about who he is, about what life looks like from his perspective. Come back to this this week. If you've not been reading for a while, 
Read something this week, even if it's just the same passage. Go back through chapter 3. If that's all you do throughout the week, it is not a bad thing to read the same passage over and over. Make it easy for yourself. Come back, continue in relationship with God's Word, with relationship with Him through letting Him speak. And if you've never started reading or if you've never started believing in God as the source of these things, start today. Let this be the day that you continue forward from. Don't wait longer for something else. Or take that step at least a little bit closer if you're not ready for that this morning. You don't have to know what to do next. That's the beauty of our faith. God will carry you the rest of the way. Be open to letting him carry you, to continue in what you've already known. And finally, move. Move out towards others instead of turning in on yourself. Continuing in these things with the Jesus who saves big, ugly sinners, with the Jesus who by his Holy Spirit carries you all the way there, who by his word speaks back into our life, that continuing doesn't stop with me and reading quietly at home. That has to continue. The way of life must spill out into the rest of our relationships. It means moving towards others in grace. So I want to encourage you to take one moment this week when you feel tempted to be, to be consumed with how you are feeling in the moment, with what you want, with what you, what you feel like you ought to have, what you're frustrated with from someone in relationship, in a conversation, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, whatever it is, and to instead of being wrapped around ourselves in that moment, to take a minute and ask God's Holy Spirit to help you and to help them. To pray for them in your heart instead of being wrapped up with how frustrated you are with them. To pray God would give them grace and help in that moment. To start using the things that God has given us that that our lives might be changed, but so that others' lives might also be changed, that we might show and share what we have. Would you pray with me? I'm going to give us just a minute here, as I did last week, to do a little talking to God in your heart about the things that we just talked about, whatever is putting on your heart right now, but that's just to be still with him for a minute, to to thank him for, for taking the ruin upon himself, to acknowledge that when maybe you haven't been living apart from it, or to confess the ways that you've, you've lived that self-centered life, the way that a lover of self or a lover of money, being, being brutal, being self-centered without self-control, the way that's been you this week. We're asking God to help you. Let's just take a moment and be still. God, we know that you're eager to hear our prayers, that it's you who moves toward us first, that we're responding towards your grace. Would you, would you reanimate us, breathe new life of grace into us, into our society, into our neighborhoods, into our families? Would you do this, God? 
because we know that you delight to overcome obstacles and odds. You delight to show yourself a big and strong and powerful God. Would you be such in our midst, even in our own hearts? It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.